Well, let's read together from the Word of God. We're turning to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 2, and we're beginning to read at verse number 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous And devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. One of the things that stands out as we read uh, the record of the works of God in Scripture, it surely is that the Lord does his work according to his ways and his plans and not according to the standards of the world. We might expect when the long-promised Messiah finally came, people of God, for centuries, for millennia, looking forward to the Messiah, when he would come, surely he would be found uh, in 
palace and some noble uh, dwelling mixing with the rich, the powerful, the influential in the world. This great deliverer God had provided. Isn't that where we would expect him to be? And there's probably something of that uh, in the outlook of the Magi, the the wise men uh, in Matthew 2. Because they go, first of all, uh, when they arrive uh, to the palace of Herod. You're expecting that this wonderful child would be there or that surely uh, Herod, the ruler, would know where he was to be found. But of course, that was not at all how it was. It was very different. It was the very opposite uh, of what might have been expected. In fact, the Messiah was born uh, in very humble circumstances. We thought about that uh, last week. And those around him in general were ordinary people, poor people, uh, often. And that is how God works. It's often not with the influential, the rich in the world's eyes, but it's with those who to the world are insignificant unimportant. And yet they are put in place by the Lord to fulfill his purpose. And so we turn to the passage we read uh, earlier in the service, Luke 2, and we're looking at verses 21 to 40. 21 to 40. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. A number of things uh, that are significant in this passage. We have, first of all, the presentation. The presentation. Now, at the very beginning of this passage, uh, there are really two events that are described. We might tend to blur them as we uh, read verse 21, 22, but there are two uh, separate events a number of weeks apart. First of all, there's the circumcision which was always performed on the eighth day after birth. And that was the sign of the covenant, the sign uh, that was applied to every Jewish male. And he was named Jesus, we're told. And that's crucial. It's not just a label. Yes, there were were many uh, Jewish boys called Joshua. That was the Jewish form uh, of the name. It wasn't an uncommon name. But the fact that it's chosen for this child is profoundly significant. As Joseph was told in Matthew 1, 21, when the angel announced these events, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the very name Jesus takes us to the heart of his work. It is a work of salvation from sin. Great redemption that will be performed in and through the Messiah. That's clear from the very outset. Here he is, eight days old, and already it's being spelled out, he has come to save. That's the first event, the circumcision. Then the one uh, that occupies most of this passage is the presentation in the temple. This will be a number of weeks later. Uh, not least when his mother would be fit to travel uh, up to Jerusalem for this uh, ceremony. Uh, it was to do with purification. It seems here not just the mother but the father uh, also sacrifice 
uh, would be offered uh, and so forth. And notice the sacrifice. We doves or pigeons the law required. You may think nothing uh, of that, but again, it's important. It was the offering for those who weren't well off. If you couldn't afford a greater offering, then doves or pigeons would be acceptable. But this was the offering, not necessarily of the very poor, but certainly people who were not well off. And that characterized uh, Mary and Joseph. He was a tradesman, a carpenter, but in the lower classes of society. It was into that family that the Son of God, the Messiah, came. And as part of what we call uh, Jesus' time of humiliation, during his ministry on earth, he endured, as the eternal Son of God, having veiled his glory, he endures a time of humiliation. That's reflected in Paul's words in Philippians 2 and verse 8. He humbled himself. How did he do that? Well, in everything about his earthly life, he was humbling himself. This is the Lord of glory, and here he is, a helpless baby, in a relatively poor family. And that's the situation that he will grow up in. He is humbling himself from the very beginning. The incarnation of the Son of God involves this great self-humbling. Not coming in the glory and radiance uh, that most of the Jews expect and hoped for, but coming in humiliation, coming in insignificance, overlooked by most of the world. But we see significant things about Jesus right at this early stage, a matter of a few weeks old. And here, as we look at the presentation in the temple, we see he fulfills prophecy. He fulfills prophecy. Uh, And we'll see that all through Jesus' earthly life. And the Gospels make a point of that. This happened in order to fulfill what was spoken of by so-and-so the prophet. And that matters greatly. Every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry was the fulfillment of prophecy. Even this, turn up Malachi 3 and verse 1. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And there he is in the temple. Malachi 400 years earlier, had written of that. And the Messiah has come to the temple. He'd come again in various ways throughout his earthly ministry. Nothing in the life and ministry of Jesus will be by chance or at random. Everything is within the sovereign plan of God. And often, as Jesus grew up, that must have been a great encouragement to him. As he read, as he learned the the Old Testament prophecies and to come to understand he was the one who fulfilled them. And that must have strengthened him for his ministry. He fulfills prophecy and also equally significant, he fulfills the law. 
He fulfills the law. Both of these events, the circumcision and the presentation, are the fulfillment of requirements of the Old Testament law. Circumcision marked Jesus as a covenant child. And of course that's rooted back in Genesis 17, where God gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham and his seed. And here is Jesus, the seed of Abraham, receives the sign of the covenant. He fulfills the law. And the presentation also was a fulfillment of the law. When we go back to Exodus 13, we're told the Lord claimed every firstborn male among the Israelites. And it's cited here as well. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, verse 23. And so each firstborn male belonged to God. And what happened in this ritual, a sacrifice was offered, really in exchange for the firstborn. He was back with his family. The Lord gave him back to his family as sacrifices were offered. That was the that, that was what was happening in this ceremony of the presentation, uh, that the Lord gave back the firstborn. And of course, in the profoundest sense, Jesus is the firstborn son. And this is a vital point. He fulfills the laws. We're told in Galatians 4 and verse 4, born under Law. This is the Son of God. That he willingly submits himself to all the requirements of the law, including circumcision and presentation. Later on, uh, we, we will see in chapter 3, baptism. And it's as our representative that he's doing that. Here is the perfect representative of his people. We're sinners we are failures, we deserve God's wrath and curse. And in Jesus, the Messiah is the one who fulfills the law that we have broken. And we need to grasp that it is a vital part of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our minds, of course, immediately go to his dying for us. And that's gloriously true. But he also lived for us. And he kept the law in our place. And right here, as he lies in his mother's arms, he's keeping the law. And he'll do it all the way through, right to the cross. And he does it in the place of sinners like us. What we can't do, keeping God's law perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. And so we're told in Hebrews 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. And here's part of his being made like his brothers. He's keeping the law in every detail. Oh yes, he was a helpless baby. He didn't choose to be circumcised, but in the providence of God, he was circumcised. He was presented in the temple. The details of the law are kept. Very significant down at verse 30. The parents are going home when Joseph and Mary had done 
everything required by the law of the Lord. So we mustn't miss that here in this account. The presentation. Here's the firstborn son. He fulfills prophecy. He fulfills the law. Presentation. Secondly, we have the prophet. The prophet. Verse 25 turns our attention now to a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. We're told who was righteous and devout. Here is a godly man in the temple. And of course, it's not by chance uh, that Simeon is there. The Lord has brought him. A man of deep faith. That, above all, stands out regarding Simeon. Looking for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was a godly man waiting for the Messiah. And very consciously doing that. Many of the Jews, of course, they knew the Messiah was promised. He would come one day, but they probably didn't think all that much about him. But here is Simeon waiting. Year after year, it would seem, for the coming of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit was upon him, we are told, and has the sense of continuously indwelling Simeon. This is a man of God in his whole life. Indeed, strikingly, the Holy Spirit has told him, verse 26, that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. And of course, that is what fueled his faith. For centuries, the Jews had lived and looked for the Messiah and died. Why would Simeon be any different? Well, there's the answer. God told him. He wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. Yeah, and that must have been a, a fascinating state of mind to be in. The Lord will let me see the Messiah. When will it be? How will this happen? But Simeon's ready. And he speaks prophetically, doesn't he? Verse 27, moved by the Spirit. This isn't simply Simeon's insight or his understanding. The Spirit of God works through, speaks through Simeon. He recognizes the true identity of this baby. Few weeks old, and yet, as Simeon understands, he is the Lord's Christ, or the Lord's Messiah. Verse 26. Imagine how his heart must have leapt there. Is the Messiah. God said you'll not die till you've seen him. And he's seen him. And so he can die in peace. We often assume uh, Simeon was an old man. And usually in Christian art. Uh, he's portrayed as a very old man. The long beard and so forth. Probably he was. But it doesn't say what age he was. But. In the deepest sense, he's ready to go. Lord, you're dismissing your servant in peace. Uh, And the Latin of that gives uh, the the title that's often applied to Simeon's song, the Nocodemitus. Now you're dismissing. And he's seen the Messiah. 
and his life really is complete. This is the high point. Whatever age he is and whatever he's experienced up to this moment, this is the pinnacle. Now you're dismissing your servant. And there's that sense of fulfillment. Year after year he's waited. Now the fulfillment has come. God's appointed time. And in language that is steeped in the Old Testament, Simeon praised God. And you notice how often Zechariah's song and Mary now with Simeon. They're full of scripture language. These are people who knew their Bible. How much does the Bible inform our praying and praising God, I wonder? Much of the language of Scripture is just part of us. It's part of these people. They knew God's Word and it just came to them naturally when they praised the Lord. And Simeon understands this is God's mighty work of salvation. It may be a tiny baby, but in him salvation has come. That's the focus, of course, of his song, of everything really in this passage. This is God's salvation. And Simeon, in faith, is able to see uh, the big picture. Verse 31. The salvation you've prepared in the sight of all people. So where Simeon's vision opens up he sees not just salvation for the Jews, but a salvation that has a worldwide scope. And men and women of faith in the Old Testament and now in the transition into the New understood this is not something narrowly Jewish. This is for the world. This is for people of all nations. And so here, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, verse 32. And you could find a lot of Old Testament precedents for that. Isaiah 42, 6, uh, for example. Uh, and there the prophet speaks of how Messiah will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And that's in Simeon's mind. That's a scripture he knows. He's probably meditated on it many times and now it comes into his thoughts a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel and yes it is believing Jews who are included but as the New Testament will go on to show us spiritually speaking everyone Jew or Gentile who believes in Messiah Jesus is a Jew Spiritually, as believers, we are Jews. We are the seed of Abraham, as Paul will write in Galatians. And so there's a worldwide scope in the work of the Messiah bursting out of the limits of the Jewish nation and embracing believers to the ends of the earth. You can hear, can you not, something of the excitement of Simeon. That he's seen the Messiah. This is what he's going to do, and it is glorious. 
Not for a second, I'm sure, did Simeon doubt this was worth waiting for. And there are things in life, you wait for them and you anticipate them, and when they come, they're a disappointment. They weren't all they were cracked up to be. And yet here for Simeon, this is in every sense the high point. This was worth whatever years he'd waited because he's seen the Messiah. And yes, the work of the Messiah will involve judgment. He speaks of the Messiah causing the falling of many in Israel because they will. There'll be many who will reject this Messiah. They'll put him on a cross. They will kill him. And they are falling over the Messiah. They're stumbling over him. He'll be spoken against. And we'll see that in the Gospels. We'll see that very soon in Luke. The opposition, particularly of the religious leaders, he'll be spoken against. Those who should have welcomed him, those who should have fallen down in awe before him, will speak against him. And there's a division when the Messiah comes. There will be unbelievers, there will be rejectors of the Messiah, but there will be salvation for many. He will cause the rising of many. And the judgment, of course, will be at the last day. The salvation is now. As the Messiah will grow up in 30 years' time, he will walk in Israel. He will heal. He will raise the dead. He will preach. He will die. He'll cause the rising of many. What a cost there will be. There will be opposition. Opposition that will lead to his death on the cross. He will suffer. He must suffer, as he will tell his disciples. The Son of Man must suffer. There's no easy path. There's no alternative to salvation. He must suffer. And Mary's going to feel it herself. A sword will pierce your own soul too. I'm sure as she pondered in her heart the things she'd heard, that was one of them. What's that going to mean? What'll the sword be? What's the cost going to be of my son doing this great work? But only the Messiah's suffering, of course, will be redemptive. Mary doesn't save by her pain and suffering. She needed salvation. Remember, she sang to God, my Savior. It'll be the suffering of this son that will bring salvation. Presentation. Prophet. Thirdly, the prophetess. Prophetess. The spotlight turns to someone else who was in the temple that day. A prophetess, Anna. And as a prophetess, she was a channel of God's word in a probably a more permanent way than Simeon was. Perhaps that was Simeon's final message, and the Lord took him soon after. We don't know, but it seems to be the case. The voice of prophecy, as we've said before, had been silent for 400 years since Malachi had written. And now suddenly in Zechariah and Mary... In Simeon, in Anna, the voice of prophecy is heard. Once again, the Spirit of God is moving. Because these are great events. These are 
world-changing events, and the prophetic word is given to explain what's happening. What does it mean that this baby is taken to the temple? Thousands of babies were taken to the temple, but this one's unique, and the voice of prophecy explains what's happening. Verse 37, a widow until she was 84. It's possible that she'd have been a widow for 84 years, but I think it's less likely to put her well over 100 probably. But she is an old woman, especially in those days when lifespans were relatively short. The Lord has spared her for many years. She's a widow. Let me skip over that and think, well, what's significant about that? But perhaps it is significant because the people of God were in a very low state spiritually. And the very first verse of Lamentations reads like this, describing Jerusalem, how like a widow is she? You think, yes, and here now is a widow symbolically in the temple who will receive Good news of God's great work, God's restoring work, rebuilding Jerusalem spiritually. And the widows will be blessed. And here's Anna as an example. This is a day of good news. She spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There are more believers there. Yes, there's Simeon and Anna and others. And they're waiting for God to act. And now he has the redemption of Jerusalem. And redemption is a great Bible word. There's some really big words in the Bible to get a hold of and understand. And redemption is one of them. Redemption, buying out of bondage. Buying out of the bondage of sin. And what is the price It'll be the blood of this Messiah that'll provide redemption. All the prophecies of, of Jerusalem's restoration will be fulfilled, not in bricks and mortar, but in the building of the church, the saving of sinners, Jews and Gentiles. That's the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And here's the builder. Here's the Messiah. And it's not only Simeon and Anna, there are other believing people sharing in her joy and praise. And that seems they gather in the temple, maybe they talked about the scriptures, maybe they, they wandered together, how will these scriptures be fulfilled? And they're there that day, privileged to see the Messiah, to hear Simeon, to hear Anna, and to know God is working. If that didn't lift their hearts, nothing would. These are believing people. And the good news of the gospel should lift the hearts of believing people in every age. Do you find yourself sometimes thinking, yeah, I'm a Christian, I know the gospel, I want to move on to other things. But we never go beyond the gospel. We should often be thinking, well, that's why we're looking at Luke's gospel. Oh, we think we know these things. We've read them since we were youngsters. But do we? Have we taken them in? Are we living in the light of them? We never outgrow 
the gospel. And whenever we hear it, it should lift our hearts and cause us to praise. Presentation. The prophet. The prophetess. And just in the final words of the passage, the progress. The progress. Requirements of the law are fulfilled. They've done all that's needed. And the family, we're told, returned to Galilee. Don't know how long they stayed in Jerusalem. Probably not that long. It'd be expensive. They head back down to Galilee, back to Nazareth. It's probably at this point that the visit of the wise men occurs. And the flight to Egypt that's described in Matthew 2. Luke doesn't mention those things. You find them in Matthew. Probably now that's where they fit in. The wise men arrive. You know, again, Christian art tradition, the wise men were there and the baby was in the manger. It was weeks later. It might have been months later when they got there and Mary and Joseph were in a house by that stage. But significant what's said here, the child grew and became strong. Normal human growth, develop, Messiah, according to his human nature's growing up. Toddler, a young child, an adolescent, a young adult. True, genuine human nature. But particularly, we're told, he was filled with wisdom and the grace or the favor of God was upon him. We're being told at this early stage Everything he needs is given by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do the work that's been described here. How will a human person, with his weaknesses and a real human body, how will he be able to do all of this? How will he cope with everything that's involved in this ministry? And really there's the answer. The grace of God is upon him. He'll uphold Jesus and his human nature. And the work won't fail. It's God's work. And it'll be carried through to a glorious, a triumphant conclusion. Even here at the beginning of his earthly life, are all the indications of a work that God is doing to save multitudes and that cannot possibly fail. Presentation in the temples, full of encouragement for the Lord's people. Here is our Savior, and He will perform the work to the very last detail. We're depending on Him eternally, and this is the one God has given for us. Let's make sure our hope and our faith and trust are in Him, not just for this life, it's very short for eternity.